We have Tom. Want to thank Tom for all his work. He just tirelessly works every year on on the service, and he puts up with me shifting things around uh, during the week. And I appreciate you, Tom, very much. As long uh, as you thank put you. up with me shifting things around during the service. I I, I figure <laughs> that out too. Okay, we appreciate that. I want to pray for Tom. I want to pray for Dan. Uh, Dan uh, Griffith, one of our elders, he had uh, shoulder surgery, and he's in the back. Uh, standing guard. I'm not sure how much he's helping uh, <laughs> with, with one arm, but uh, we appreciate him. And we appreciate Nancy and uh, Nathan downstairs right now teaching our, our youngsters. Um, appreciate Bill for opening up the church and, and, and Alice for uh, consistently uh, always getting all the paperwork ready for me uh, all the time and, and just uh, Jacob back there running the audio video and and all the people that have helped throughout the whole year uh, I'm thankful I'm thankful for your service and and appreciate it let's go to the Lord in prayer Heavenly Father Lord there are so many to thank and so many to show appreciation to uh, but we go to you and we give you the praise and all the glory I think of Pastor Dave as he's uh, on his way down to Angola to serve in the prison ministry, that you, you be with him, give them opportunities to uh, worship you. I, I, I praise you that you have given them an opportunity where the door was closed and now it's open again uh, to go down there. We pray for, for Dan and his shoulder. We pray for Children's Church, that you bless them downstairs, uh, that they will learn more about you. I believe today they're learning about your birth, Lord Jesus, and we are thankful we're thankful for, for the lesson to be learned there. We're thankful uh, for the story that you have put before us uh, of Joseph and Joseph's family and, again, the inheritance of you. To focus our love and our, our life on you alone. We pray that you are glorified in all that we say and all that we do, even... Uh, as, as a majority of people here sit to listen to me speak, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you affect their hearts and affect their pens, affect their thoughts to be focused in on you, to be focused in on the empty cross and the empty grave and your resurrection. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Well, today marks the seventh sermon of this sermon series of Joseph seeing the good in God's detours. And, and just like the other messages, today we're going to talk about Joseph, obviously. But today we're, we're going to shift our focus a little bit more on to the brothers of Joseph, the, the ten older brothers. If you remember, we started our sermon series. We explained how, how Joseph came from a long line of patriarchs, a long line of people who loved God and who were called by God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. We learn about how Jacob tricked his, with the help of his mom, tricked his dad into getting the birthright. And then we, then we hear about Jacob's father-in-law, how he tricked him into marrying the sister of the one he loved so much. He eventually got to marry the one he loved so much 
as well. Uh, then we hear about uh, that, that oldest sister, how she gave birth uh, to several, several kids uh, before Rachel, his beloved, was ever able to give birth. Finally, after, after 10 kids were born, finally, Rachel gave birth to a, a young man named Joseph. After 11 kids were born and, and, and maybe, maybe a daughter as well in there, Rachel gives birth again, and this one to the 12th boy, Benjamin, and in that birth, she dies. Joseph is the favorite. Everyone knows that Joseph's the favorite. He gets a coat of many colors. He, he, he's flaunting that around as Scripture is teaching us where the, where the other brothers can see it the whole time. And then Joseph, he has a couple dreams. He has a couple dreams, and he tells his brothers about it. He tells his dad about it, and they don't like him. Eventually, all the brothers, the ten older brothers, they're out working in a, in a place far away, Shechem. Joseph is sent out there to go check on him. He's 17 years old, and, and he goes to check on him, and, and as he goes there, they're not even at Shechem. They went to Dothan. If you remember, that, that was 10, 12, 15 miles northwest of where, he, where they were supposed to be. So he finally finds them. Finally finds them. And as he's walking in the far distance, they see the coat. And the brothers get ticked. And they start conspiring and they say, we're going to kill him. We'll see if his dreams ever come true. We are going to murder our little brother. Well, we learn Reuben talks him out of it and says, hey, we got an empty pit here. Let, let's just toss him in that pit. And so as, as he comes up, they, they rip his coat off and they chuck him in this pit. And then they eat lunch. And as they're sitting there, another idea comes along. And Judah says, you know what, let, let, let's sell them to these, these traders that are coming our way. I, I, I bet they're heading down to Egypt. And so they do. They sell them for 20 shekels of silver. And, and, and he goes taken away to Egypt. They, they run home, show dad. They, they kill the kill the goat and they they put the blood on the coat and they showed dad and said oh my goodness is this your son's coat i think something ate him and he believed it and he was sad joseph then is sold to the home of potiphar who, who's the guard who's the the security the, the the secret service for for the pharaoh and when he's sold there he he figures out his way he starts learning the, the language, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden, he's put in charge because everything he touches is blessed. I think I used the word in the, in the message. He had the Midas touch. Everything he was doing was, was just benefiting his master. So he's put in charge. Well, it, it, Scripture tells us that he's a good-looking guy. And, and, and it, since he's, everything he's touching is being blessed, People look at that, and people are fond of that. And, well, Potiphar's wife was fond of him. And she knew that she could seduce him, or at least she thought she could. And so she tried to get with him in many different ways, I'm sure. 
And finally, it came about where she grabbed him and says, please be with me. And Joseph wisely, because he probably made the decision ahead of time, he fled. He ran. But while he ran, he left his garment behind. Well, that's all she needed. She uses that and showed her husband, Potiphar, and, and, and Potiphar said, well, there's the evidence that he was trying to rape her, even though I believe Potiphar didn't even think he was, think he knew his wife was up to no good, like usual. Instead of killing Joseph, he throws Joseph in the prison. And Joseph just sits there. But... Like a good soldier, a good servant of God, he decides, I'm going to make the best out of this situation. And all of a sudden, Joseph is put in charge of the jail, put in charge of, of the entire prison area. And then there's two guys, the baker and the cup bearer. And, and they come in, and, and they're thrown in jail for some unknown reason, and they both have a dream one night. And Joseph listens to their dream, he says, oh, you don't have to be sad. I can interpret that dream because my God will give, give me the answer. And he interprets the dream and, and tells them what it is, and he says, the only thing is, is please remember me. Please remember me. Well, the cupbearer is released. The baker's released. The baker dies, as the dream said. The cupbearer goes back, and he does not remember Joseph, or he chooses not to remember Joseph. Eventually, the pharaoh has a, a dream two years later, and, and he can't rest, and no one can answer it, and, and the cupbearer goes, oh, there's this guy in prison. And they bring Joseph out, they clean him up, and he goes in front of the pharaoh, and he says, I can't answer anything, but my God can. And he answers the pharaoh's dream, he, he interprets it, and he says, here's what you need to do. There's going to be seven years of, of great plenty and then seven years of famine. You need to store up. You need to prepare for this famine because then when the famine hits, we'll be able to eat. Joseph is, is then put in charge of all of it. He's made into the prime minister, which is second in charge of everything. Only the pharaoh on his throne was, was greater and Joseph ends up having his own little family, two children, a wife, and he truly is saving the known world because of his preparation. Now we move into today's story, Genesis chapter 42, the entire chapter, and it's going to talk about how, how the brothers need to figure out what they're going to do. Because Today, we're going to learn about how God breaks a man. And I'm not saying a man in a gender form. I'm saying man in humanity. God has the great ability to break us and to help us uh, be thoughtful. And believe you me, God can break you at any point. He, he, can, he can take away a preacher's voice in a second he can take away our ability to walk. He can take away our finances. If we're resting in on those physical or, or those worldly materials, we better watch out because he could take that away in a second. I think we should be asking God to break us too. I think we should be looking 
for God to, to really break us in, in places that we are confident that we're in control. Today's scripture, we are going to cover the whole book. Next week, we're covering the whole book of chapter 43 and chapter 44. So a lot of studying going on. And this story, it starts off with, 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 Jacob, with, with Joseph's dad, Jacob. And Jacob's looking around and he's realizing, what in the world? We have nothing to eat here. We stored up a whole bunch of grain for ourselves. We've got all kinds of livestock, but we have nothing to eat. We're going to starve to death. But you know what I heard at the cafe down the street? I heard there's grain in Egypt. We, we need to go there. So they're all talk, talking amongst themselves and, and basically looking, looking around. And, and then he sees the sons. And he sees the sons just looking at each other, probably saying, not, not me, not it, not it, as the kids would say. I'm not going. And they're just sitting around not wanting to take care of, of not only themselves, but their extended family. And now Jacob chides them. Let's go there. Genesis 42. We're going to read the first five verses. Genesis 42, 1 through 5. We won't stand just because I'm going to be, I'm going to just going to keep it rolling. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to the sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Well, it doesn't say anything about the cafe. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob, he did not send Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is number 12, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. You see, these brothers, these brothers were, were in need of restoration. They were truly in a need of restoration, not only from their brother Joseph, something that happened 20 plus years ago, but from their God. And sometimes the only way, the only way for this journey of restoration to begin is if there is a crisis in your life. If there's a crisis in your life. And you know what? This crisis, this particular crisis was the famine. They were going to die. They truly would die if they didn't have any place to be able to pick up their food, any place where they can get a reserve. And I don't think we realize how, how food can be scarce. As many of you know, I've traveled to Ethiopia several times, and I've seen food being scarce. I've heard stories of food being scarce. I think if my kids right now I, I, I could see them going in our refrigerator and opening it up, looking around, maybe going in the cupboard, and what would they say? There's nothing to eat here. It's kind of like us with TV. Oh, there's nothing on. We probably have 30 to 90 days of, of reserves available for us just in our house right now, depending on what's in the freezer. But this wasn't the situation that was happening in Canaan. You see, the famine started in Egypt, and it says the, the wind was blowing from the east, from all the desert area. That's where the famine was happening, and it was coming into Egypt, and, and that's where Canaan was. 
in the far northeast. They were genuinely going to starve to death. Our crisis in our lives, they, they get, us, get our attention. You know, sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes a spouse is being, uh, being harmful to us with their words or their actions. Maybe it's a financial crisis that, that you can't get out. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you can't stop drinking or can't stop going for that smoke. Maybe it's a medical situation where, where it is a crisis and we need to get it resolved. There's been many of these several times in my short life where there's been these small crises where, where I see them and I, I look at them and I, I get fearful. When, when I got to, what my job is instead is to stop, drop to my knees and reflect on, on who God is. Because God, you know, he's put me exactly where he wants me. You know, we reflected on, the, on our, with our first sermon, the first sermon of this, of these seven sermons so far, that Joseph is exactly where he needs to be in order to save his family. All of that, when you look back on it, it's exactly where God wanted him to be. Pastor Dave, who, who's now with us, he's in Angola, he, he tells all the time that the prisoners will say, if it wasn't for me coming to prison, I would have never found the Lord. Not, not, not that God is blessing the sin, but God has you where he needs you to break you in a certain way. You know, that, that's where he starts wanting to cave walls down. He's going to start caving walls down. And that's, that's where restoration happens. And I'm guessing these ten brothers, that they didn't want to go to Egypt. They did not want to go to Egypt. Three reasons. First, they're probably really, really nervous. They may have never been there. They may have been uh, 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 scared. Write, write nervous in your notes. Write, write the word nervous. They just might have been nervous about what, what was going to happen when they got there and, and what were people going to say. Write the phrase, thinking too much. Thinking too much. And they're probably thinking a lot about this. They hear the word Egypt, and they think about their little brother. Wait a minute. Last time we talked about Egypt, we were sending our brother there. I wonder what happened to him. Why is he there? Remember he was screaming as he was being drug away, and, and we were kind of looking at him and then kind of walking the other direction? Maybe they were lazy. Maybe that's why you can't break down a wall because you're, you're just lazy. You know, Scripture said that, that the brothers, write down that word lazy, you're, the brothers were looking at each other because maybe they were saying, not me, I don't want to do it. I think about that uh, for us, of how lazy we are sometimes. That's why we're, we're stuck in a sin. That's why we're stuck in a habit 
that's keeping us from moving forward with God uh, for our restoration because we don't want the work. We don't want, want to put forth the effort. It's just as easy to come in the house and flip through the remote while you're lounging than to spend time with your kid throwing the football. Sometimes our walls need to be broke down in order for us to take the next step. In, the, in this case, Jacob was being very wise. He was pushing his kids. He was giving them the wisdom to do that, and they could carry a lot together. And I'm guessing you have a lot of walls, too, if you're like me. There are these, these imaginary walls that, that become extremely real in, in, in the spiritual world. Perhaps you... you, you can't get that conversation with your son or daughter that you haven't talked to in 20 years. Maybe it's been three weeks. And you're trying to figure out how you're going to break down that wall because you're nervous. You're nervous to talk to them. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4 says, For, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We walk in the flesh, but we are not waging war according to the flesh. It is all God's. That's the thing with walls. They're built on false belief many times, false understanding. We're thinking so much that we're actually, it's, they're not real. Maybe you're pondering whether or not you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm trying to deal with this, this pornography situation. Now, maybe, maybe I should put a filter on. Maybe I should get an accountability. Nah. I, I'm struggling with this alcoholism. Maybe I should get involved with AA again. Great group of guys. Good and Kurt. Nah. Nah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Because maybe you're too lazy, too. Maybe you don't want to take the extra effort. I think that we have walls to be shattered, but let me tell you something. You can't break them down. You do not have the ability to break them down. There's a story in the book of Joshua Joshua chapter 6, I believe, and it's one of the oldest cities ever recorded in history. Jericho, just north of the Dead Sea, and as they were just coming over the Jordan River, they needed to conquer the city. God was telling them, this is a city you need to conquer in order for you to start taking back the land that I promised Abraham, the land I promised Isaac, the land I promised Jacob. know what to do. And God told him, do not speak. Walk around the city one time. Do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. And on the seventh day, shout. Shout to the Lord. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. These walls were huge. I, I've seen the archaeology 
of them. It's amazing the, the, the validity of that story. But those walls didn't come crumbling down by man smashing them with their hands, smashing them with tools. It came down with the word of God, and they obeyed it. And that's how your walls can come tumbling down as well. That's how we deal with walls. We talk to God. Let's continue our story. So the ten brothers, they arrive in Egypt. They've moved on, and, and now they've arrived in Egypt, and what's the first thing they do is they bow down to the prime minister. Who's the prime minister? Their brother Joseph. Brings us back to his, his first dream, doesn't it? Genesis 37, 6 through 7, here's what it says. This is Joseph speaking. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. It's been fulfilled. They came for grain. They came for sheaves of grain, and now they were bowing down to their brother. That's amazing. Amazing. This is, this is the third dream, the third set of dreams where Joseph is watching them being fulfilled, exactly as God had, in, had interpreted them. Nearly, Joseph nearly immediately recognizes these guys. <clears throat> they probably smelled. They, they weren't the, the cleanest group of people. And, and their accent was definitely noticeable. They spoke a specific language. And, and as they're coming up, Joseph recognized them immediately. There was 10 of them. He could recognize features, probably most of them. Remember, it's been 20 plus years, but they could not recognize Joseph. Remember, Joseph's clean shaven, which wouldn't be the case for his brothers. Joseph was only 17 when, when they sold him. Now he's, he's dressed in Egyptian garb, probably smells good, and, and he speaks their language, the Egyptian language. And he's in, a, in the most powerful position besides the Pharaoh. There's no way they'd recognize him. They may have a hint that they see a certain thing happen, but no way, not in this, because they were scared for their own lives. So Joseph tries to figure out what to do. He's speaking to them through an interpreter, and so he says, you know what? You guys are spies. You guys are spies. And he's scaring them. He's, he's buying himself time to, to strategize. What am I going to do? How am I going to help these guys? How am I going to restore the situation? And, and they're begging. They're saying, no, 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 we're, we're not spies. And, and when you get nervous, you just start saying whatever. They're like, no, no, there's actually 12 of us. We're all brothers. One of them's back home. One of them's no longer with us. And now it's us 10. There's no way we're spies. My dad is back home. He would never send 10 of us. Is that you would never send 10 of the same family into a war, into a battle to be spies. Because if you're caught being a spy, you're going to be killed. So you wouldn't want to do that to the family. So Joseph, he decides... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to imprison nine of you. Nine of you are going to go to jail, go to prison, probably where he was. 
It doesn't say that, but I bet that was the same prison that he sat in for multiple years. I'm going to put nine of you in prison. I'm going to send one of you back to Canaan, and you are going to bring back Benjamin if this, or bring back your other brother like you're telling me, which was Benjamin. So he puts all of them in prison, and he does that for three days. They all sit in there for three days. I, I don't know if that was for their benefit or for Joseph's benefit to strategize, to think it through. But imagine being put in prison in a foreign land. You don't understand what people are saying. You're assuming you're dead. Because if you really are a spy, you are going to be killed. And the prime minister says you are spies. And he said he was going to release one of us, but now all of us are in here. So in the meantime, Joseph comes up with a new plan. <clears throat> and he says he's going to send nine of them back, just keeping one. Genesis 42:18b says this. Do this and you will live for I fear God. And then he tells him what to do. But this is a crucial point. This is a crucial point because Joseph is bringing out the name of God. This would not be normal. Now remember he's speaking through an interpreter as to not be noticed, but he uses the name God. And an Egyptian ruler would not be using the name God, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of their father, Jacob. But he does, and maybe that comforted their hearts just for a moment. But right there, that's where life change starts beginning. Because he's saying, I'm going to send nine of you back. I'm only going to keep one of you. Nine of you are going to get to take grain back. I'm going to save nine of you. Because life change begins when a person recognizes that grace, grace is being shown. They're not going to die. They realize that the person who holds the keys to their life has just released them and said, you're free. Go. You're free. Scripture's full of verses that remind us of grace. Romans 3.24 says, well, I'll read more of Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We've all sinned, but there's grace given by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is awesome. Grace is wonderful. Grace is, is why we are here. If it weren't for grace, this church wouldn't exist. And God gives it freely, which is amazing. Something also interesting that's happening is, is that when they're shown grace, sometimes a, a, as someone is gracious to you, you all of a sudden start feeling more guilty. Because someone's like, oh, no, no, no problem, go ahead. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Life change starts happening when we're remembering our specific sins. 
So the brothers, they're starting to talk amongst themselves. Remember, they don't think that Joseph, they don't know who Joseph is. He's the prime minister, and they don't think he can understand their language. And so they're just talking amongst themselves. And in verse 21 and 22, here are the brothers speaking. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben, remember Reuben's the oldest son, the oldest brother. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So they're starting the blame game. But also I think there's a heart change starting to happen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Life change. Life change is starting to happen. Life change starts to happen. You, you, this conversation may have not happened for decades. And all of a sudden, it's, it's all come back to life. You know, Joseph never said anything about the killing of the brother or the death of the brother. All he did was free him. He gave him grace. They don't know what's happening. They don't understand. They don't see the end picture here. But it stirred up some life change, and you start remembering the sins of your life. And the sins were starting to be revealed. You know, it was this response by the brothers, the way they were responding, that actually affected Joseph significantly. Verse 24a says, this is talking about Joseph. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. Joseph wept. Five or six times we'll, we'll read this, that Joseph cried. Life change happens when you realize someone is sorry for what they have done. When you realize someone is actually sorry for what they have done. You know, sometimes when we're talking to our kids and they've gotten in trouble about something, they could say sorry. They could apologize to someone. But when we can tell that their heart has changed, when they're really sorry, at least it, it appears that, that we see it with their emotions, that's when we're satisfied. You see, the story might have been out of Joseph's mind. He had, remember he named his kids. Uh, I'm basically, I'm... I'm I remember it, but I'm forgetting it. God has blessed me where I am, and I'm going to serve God where I am because God has called me to this, and now all of it has come back to his memory. Someone does something to you or someone reminds you of a story of your childhood, and all of a sudden you may start crying because you just remembered, oh my goodness, that was a horrible time. God has, has unique ways of affecting us, but when you hear somebody to say, sorry, or you can read somebody and, and you can tell that they are apologetic for what they have done, it affects you. When someone does something to me or someone says something to me and I hear that they are sorry, whether directly to me or not, I feel different about the situation. I feel better about the situation. My heart actually changes quicker. You know, but this got me thinking. Who do we need to seek out to say sorry? Who do we need to, is it something that 
we did to somebody yesterday or 30 years ago in high school? Is there something that we have done to somebody that we have never said sorry about? There was, there was a young lady at my grade school in junior high that, that we made fun of all the time. Last year, I, I served as her son's soccer coach. And I got an opportunity to just tell her sorry for what I had done to her. She acted like she never knew anything I was talking about, of what I was talking about. But I wonder if she went away that day and, wow, he, he really he really was sorry. How many more people do I need to do that to? Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God forgave you. Scripture teaches us all the time to live peaceable among all men. Life change. Life change starts happening when people say sorry. Let's move on. So Joseph, he decides to keep the second oldest kid. So, so they're talking amongst themselves. He already said, I'm going to keep one of you. I'm sending nine home. So he keeps the second oldest, Simeon. Commentators believe that it's because maybe he heard Reuben saying, hey, I told you guys, let's not mess with him. Maybe he heard Reuben back at the time talk about, hey, guys, let's just leave him in the pit. Maybe somehow he figured out, maybe, maybe Reuben had whispered, hey, I'm going to come get you after a bit in the pit. I, I don't know. But he chose to keep Simeon. And he's going to keep Simeon in the jail. And then he goes out and, and he tells his people, you know what, fill their bags and fill them huge and put them on the donkeys and, and give them so much grain. And not only that, sneak their money back in their bags. Not only am I going to give them the free gift of life, I'm going to give them the free gift of grain. I'm going to give them all their money back. Their money's no good here. You ever had someone tell you that? Hey, your money's no good here. I've got this. That's what he was doing. And he said, your job is to go get Benjamin. Go get the youngest. Bring him back, and Simeon will be free. So they get back to their dad and... or on their way back to go tell their dad, one of them looks in his bag and he sees the money. And instead of being happy that he has his money and his grain, in their heads they're like, oh my goodness. Did they forget to take the money? Am I being set up as a thief? They're truly going to kill me now. So they come back and they tell their dad this tale. Now remember the last time they were gone that we have heard and they were gone, and one of the brothers didn't come back with them. They told this tale, or they, they explained this, and they sh shared a, a, a bloodied coat, and they said, I don't know where he is. He must have died. Now they have another tale. Hey, we got all this grain, and we've got all the money back, and uh, we don't have Simeon. So our job is we have to take Benjamin all the way back. That's what they said. That's the only way to get Simeon. And Reuben actually says, 
go ahead, you can actually kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin and Simeon back. That doesn't even make sense. Why would he kill two of his grandchildren? Reuben's just trying to figure out. He's freaking out. And they all find their money in their bags. Verse 35 of Genesis 42 says, As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. They were afraid. Life change starts happening when you receive and accept salvation that was freely given. Everything here was freely given. Wide open. Take it all. They became afraid. And you know what? Many times, many times as I've communicated scripture, there, there have been people that, that have been afraid. There have been people afraid of what I was saying. I talked to somebody uh, a few weeks ago talking about how it's scary to think about what I would have to give up if I wanted to serve God. I know Bill has had the conversation with, with, with different people, and I know one person said, I can't go to church yet. I got to get better. You see, we're scared to come when we have this guilt on us. But that's the beauty of salvation. God meets you exactly where you are. There was a gal who, who came with me to Ethiopia on my first trip. And I had all these uh, conversations, uh, these conference calls ahead of time, prepping everybody about what we were going to be doing. There was about 16 of us, if I remember correct, and I was the leader of them, and, and I was talking about how we're going to do devotions and how we're going to preach the gospel and, and how we're going we're to hit the orphanages and, and we're going to talk to widows and, and poor people on the streets. And, and, and so we did. And this girl was, as she tells me later on, she was kind of freaking out. She was kind of freaking out about all of these things that I was saying. What in the world are you talking about? And then she started listening to us at devotion time and reflection time at night. And she's like, this is, this is scary. What you guys are talking about, this isn't what I learned growing up in the Catholic Church. I, I, I don't know about this grace stuff. What is grace? Two weeks after our trip, she committed her life to Jesus Christ. And today she serves Jesus on a daily basis as a second grade teacher. But it's scary sometimes when you're facing grace. And then Jacob freaks out because he's not going to give away Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is the, the baby boy of Rachel, his beloved. And Joseph was already killed in his mind. He wasn't going to give up Benjamin. He was the only one left, Scripture says. I think he responded in inappropriate ways, Jacob did. He responded with blame. Verse 36 of chapter 42, he says, You have bereaved me, bereaved me of my children. He didn't reset, uh, accept the responsibility. You know what? Most of this, almost all of this was caused by Jacob's ignorance and his lack of spiritual leadership. That, that's, that's where a lot of this has come. And sometimes when you are looking at your children, 
you, you need to stop and think, hold up. Maybe I'm to blame for some of this. Maybe if my leadership was stronger, maybe if my devotion to Christ was greater, not in a, in a, in a pious way where, where you're saying that you're perfect, but that you are devoted to trying to follow God's word and that you're not afraid to have conversations with your children. We blame our parents. We blame our spouse. We blame our teacher. We blame uh, the coach. We love blaming other people. I think Jacob should have done a self-examination. Second, Jacob responded with pessimism. Verse 36, all this has come against me. Oh, woe is me. I, I'm in such a bad situation here. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it, it could be a valid statement, but he's forgetting about the promises that God has made him. God has promised. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God. He wrestled with God. He knew God, but he had forgot. He had forgot that God is in control. Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for the good to those that love the Lord, to those that are called according to his purpose. And some, some believers, maybe some believers here, are like Jacob and are thinking, oh, this situation, this is too much for me. Why, God, why do you keep putting me in this situation? When we're forgetting, and I'm preaching to myself, when you're forgetting that God is great, that God is almighty, that God has you exactly where he needs you right this minute. Jacob also responded with fear. Verse 38 says, my son shall not go down with you. You see, Jacob's concern was legitimate because he had lost his other, other son recently. But it's just postponing the inevitable. He knew he needed to go get Simeon. He knew he needed to take care, care of it. There's a story that's told that, that there's a little toy boat out in the, out in the pond. And the little boy is, is, is on his knees and he's trying to get the boat without going in the water. It's too deep and, and he's scared about it. And, and all of a sudden this guy is walking by and this guy just starts chucking rocks at the boat. And the little boy starts crying and he's like, what in the world's going on? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you throwing rocks at my boat? And then all of a sudden the boat starts moving towards the boy. The man wasn't throwing rocks at the boat. He was throwing rocks over the boat to get the ripple effects to come toward the little boy. And that's what happened with Jacob right here. He wasn't throwing, God wasn't throwing rocks at Jacob. He was throwing rocks over Jacob's head to start rippling him. He needed to move him to Egypt in order to save him in order for the process to happen and Moses to get there and Judah eventually, Judah's kids and their kids and their kids and their kids eventually, baby Jesus. So how about you and me? What must we do to allow God to break us? We're going to watch a, a quick movie clip here. 
This is, this is a, a comedy called Matilda. Some of you may have seen it. But I want you to, to recognize the beautiful cars that they're restoring. It, it's just a, a one-minute clip. Uh, I'll let Jacob show it. Here. One day, all this will be yours. This? See this junker? I paid $100 for her. She's got 120,000 miles on her. Transmission shot, bumpers have fallen off. What do I do with her? Hmm? I sell her. We really should weld these bumpers on her. But that takes time, equipment, money. So we use super, super glue instead. Go ahead. Put it on there. Waterfall off? Definitely. Isn't that dangerous? Not to me, OK? Transmission. The sawdust quiets the gears and lets the engine run as sweet as a nut for a couple of miles. <laughs> Daddy, that's cheating. Of course it's cheating. Nobody ever got rich being honest. 20 years ago, we could turn the numbers back by hand. But here, take my hat. But the feds like to test the ingenuity of the American businessman. Two-directional drill. You run it backwards, the numbers go down. Watch your speed up. Cool. <sighs> well, too many of us are living our lives. Too many of us are living our lives. We're trying to fix them. We're, we're, we're trying to restore them in ways that won't last. We're, they're, they're, they're truly, we're just trying to do little fixes with super, super glue that, that's going to try to fix the situation. Maybe we, if we lose weight, <laughs> that's the key. Then life's great. If we get a job where we're making $120,000, that's the key. You know what? It's that new haircut. It's that new outfit. It, it, it's, it's the new shoes. If we buy that 65-inch TV, it's going to be glorious. We get that house. That's what we need. We turn to ourselves and we look, how do we, how do we create the change? How do we make the difference? Well, just like the movie clip, what we do is we fill our body we do the stuff on the exterior. We do stuff exteriorly because we think that's going to make the difference when that's not what God wants. He, we try to do from the outside in. God does the opposite. God does the inside out. The Pharisees, this is exactly what they did. Matthew 23, 25 through 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. If we're going to allow God to break us, we must surrender the old. We must surrender the old. Our lives are messed up, just like these old cars. They're absolutely messed up. And, and you know what? We can't be the one doing the restoration your car restored, just go with me. We can't be the one to do the restoration. We need a restore. We have to start to say, I can't, but you can, God. So if we're really going to be restored, we need to surrender the pieces, the individual pieces, piece by piece. 
We need to, we need to get the, the bumper fixed. We need to get the roof fixed. We need to get the doors fixed, the seats fixed, and especially we need to get the engine fixed. And, and, and you know what? There's only one who can do that restoration. There's only one with a capital O. I was watching a TV show where they were, they were fixing and restoring a car, and not only did they take it all apart, and they took the engine out, they actually took the whole engine, every little screw apart piece by piece, and they fixed each of those or replaced them and put brand new ones, and then all of a sudden they, they started putting it all back together. They started putting it back together, and, and, and it looked perfect. It looked brand new. And that's when you have to surrender the new. You surrender the new. After the car's been put to back together and, and it starts driving on the road, it, it, it needs to be maintained. And it needs to be every single day looked after and cleaned and, and fixed and, and, and watched over in order for it to become its fullest. You see, when Christ puts the pieces of our lives back together, he does it with a great piece of restoration. He uses us, us, you, and me for, for his intended purpose, for his purpose, not our purpose. Because he is the original designer. Because that's what we need. We need the designer. Eventually, as, as we'll see in the life of Joseph, we discover our ultimate value in, in being Christ agents. We get to be Christ agents to bring authentic restoration for our cars, which are our bodies and our souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His rest. His rest is restoration that gives us satisfying new life. To be in Christ, who we are designed to be, who we are designed to be will determine what we are designed to do, which will determine where we are designed to go. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. So we ask the restorer, we ask Jesus Christ to humbly cause us to bow our knees to him. Surrender your old life. Surrender your sins. Surrender piece by piece each area of your life and in your, in your new life to the one who makes things all brand new. Amen? Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful to serve you, to worship you, to praise you. We're thankful that you are the great restorer. Thank you for, uh, for the story of Joseph and the story of, of restoration that's about to happen in the lives of the brothers and, and the entire family. We're so thankful, God, that you are willing to send your son Jesus Christ to the cross to be sacrificed on my behalf on our behalf because there's nothing I am doing that is good enough for you God 
That is why I am so thankful to get out of the way and to allow you to do as you desire. Change us, God. Affect us. Uh, create in us a, a spirit that is willing to bow and humble ourselves before you, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We praise you for the empty cross. We praise you for the empty tomb. We give you all the glory. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.